Welcome to the Pinocchio Project. I'm your host, Mitch Friedman. Ideas have consequences, and every day you're exposed to ideas that promise human flourishing. Our mission here on the Pinocchio Project is to equip you to examine these everyday ideas so that you can determine for yourself whether or not they deliver on their promises. Hello and welcome to the Pinocchio Project. I'm your host, Mitch Friedman. And today I want to talk about the reality of climate change. The reality of climate change. And depending on which side of the issue you fall, uh, you may be either rejoicing that Mitch is a fan supporting your position or that Mitch has left the reservation, has jumped the guardrails, and has moved to the wrong side of the aisle or the issue altogether. Uh, that's really uh, probably a, a justified response, but I am a believer in climate change. Uh, climates do change. And particularly this morning, I want to talk about climate change as it's related to cultural norms and accepted behavior. Uh, because if unless you've been under a rock for the last 50 or 60 years, uh, the climate of cultural norms and acceptable behaviors in this country and in the West particularly uh, has changed dramatically. Uh, when you talk about scientific or climatological change in weather patterns, uh, those are slow processes uh, that take centuries and maybe even millennia to be realized. But I'm talking about cultural climate change, uh, what's seen as acceptable and what's seen as taboo and the, and the consequences that come from cultural climate change. And so I've titled today's episode, Climate Change and a Mother's Grief. Uh, last, last Sunday, which is a week ago, uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday was Mother's Day, by the way. So uh, happy Mother's Day to all you moms. I hope you were appropriately spoiled and recognized. And uh, we love you all. Without moms, there is no us. So thank you. Uh, so a week ago, Sunday on May the 7th, I was teaching my Intro to Biblical Worldview course, and I talked about this climate change in our country uh, that is rooted in a developmental set of environmental factors that have changed the cultural climate that we live in. Uh, but the, the, the events of uh, this year in 2003 that indicate the expansion of this climate change were just breaking my heart. And I'm particularly talking about mass shootings uh, in this context, immediate context of the, the, the weather patterns have changed. Um, uh, as of May 9th, uh, that's 129 days in to 2023. As of May 9th, 129 days into 2023, there have been how many mass shootings in the United States? How many would you guess? Let me, let me give you a definition. A mass shooting is generally, there's no real clear consensus or one, one uh, accepted uh, definition, but generally people can agree in this framework. At least four fatalities or injuries uh, in one single shooting event. So... 129 days in, as of May 9th, 
how many shootings of four fatalities or injuries in one event have there been in the United States? 129 days. Less than 50? Hands? Way too low. Less than 100? Way too low. 125 or less? Too low. 150 or less? Still too low. And now we've surpassed the number of days in the year, actually. 175? Nope. 200? Still low. As of May 9th, there have been 203. 129 days in, 203 mass shootings in the United States. And if this surprises you, uh, it actually shouldn't, given the cultural climate change in our country over the past couple of generations. And so what is the headwaters of this climate change? And what is the problem to be solved? Uh, I would offer that there's a fabric that's been woven into our cultural consciousness uh, that provides for an environment, a weather pattern that produces this kind of horror on a multi-event per day basis. This is about 1.65, I'm just doing quick math. You can check me. This is something that happens multiple times a day. And I would offer that we have woven a fabric of climate change over the past couple of generations that have made this kind of behavior not acceptable, but something that is practiced so often that it brings us kind of to this point of apathy. I mean, we may respond in horror, but when it's over and over and over and over and over again, we lose our sensitivity. And that is similar to the main event that has woven this fabric that happens over and over and over and over and over again, but not met with horror, but met with approval. And that is abortion. Abortion ruins everything and solves nothing. And it has created the mindset of the denigration and degradation and dismissal of the value of human life over the course of these past couple of generations. And you might say, well, wait, abortion was overturned as Roe v. Wade was reversed. Oh, it was not at all. We have now been culturally conditioned to, to desire the right for reproductive health care. That's the euphemism for abortion. And so now, state by state, the issue has been returned to the states, rightly so, but we have been so conditioned by this accepted and even celebrated and demanded quote-unquote right that we will not let it go. There's something now dark woven into the, to the fabric and the, 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 the fibers and the quilt of our life together based on the scourge of abortion that has now influenced culture in every possible way toward the degradation of human life. Abortion solves nothing and ruins everything. And we are experiencing now the, the, the hurricane force winds of this cultural climate change. Uh, as we see these, these, these denigrations and these dismissals 
of the value of human life on a m multiple events per day. And what I would like to do is, uh, I've titled this episode, Climate Change and a Mother's Grief. I, I want to read something from one particular mother about how this climate change has brought us to this moment. And, uh, and she does a really good job. Uh, her name is Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa is not a lady who had any children of her own. She saw all the marginalized, all those suffering needlessly under oppression and, and deprivation as her children. And in, uh, in, 19, in 1994, she talked about the 1973 decision, <clears throat> Roe v. Wade, and we're now 21 years in, in February of 94, uh, roughly 20, 21 years in, and she is, she is now just making climatological observations from the standpoint of what's now accepted in culture and the outcomes that it's producing. So Mother Teresa filed what's known as an amicus brief before the U.S. Supreme Court in a, in a contested case about abortion rights, uh, uh, just two particular cases, uh, Los versus New Jersey and Crail et al. versus New Jersey. And she, she filed what's known as a friend of the court brief. A friend of the court is someone who has no skin in the game. They're not a, uh, a plaintiff or a defendant. Uh, they're not a contestant in the case, but they file based on their expertise and their position and their reputation, and they file a brief to the court uh, for the court to consider as they deliberate the, the merits of any particular case. And so this is Mother Teresa's discussion of, of the weather patterns in the U.S. and how beginning with Roe v. Wade. Now, Roe v. Wade was a culmination of ideas as well about what makes life worth living, what it means to be human, what's wrong with the world, what can be done to fix it, and where is my story going? But she, she, she basically did a rehearsal of the, the magnificent weather patterns that the United States provided culturally for everyone involved in life here, and then how it began to slowly degrade and the, the momentum shifted to a cultural tsunami of death, uh, which is where we find ourselves. So here, I'm going to read the entire brief. It shouldn't take that long. Mother Teresa, quote, I hope you will count it no presumption that I seek your leave to address you on behalf of the unborn child. Like that child, I can be considered an outsider. I am not an American citizen. My parents were Albanian. I was born before the First World War in a part of what was not yet and is no longer Yugoslavia. In many senses, then, I know what it is like to be without a country. I also know what it is to feel like an adopted citizen of other lands. When I was a, still a young girl, I traveled to India. I found my work among the poor and the sick of that nation, and I have lived there ever since. Since 1950, I have worked with many of my sisters from around the world as one of the missionaries of charity. Our congregation now has over 400 foundations in more than 100 countries, including the United States of America. 
and we have almost 5,000 sisters. We care for those who are often treated as outsiders in their own communities by their own neighbors, the starving, the crippled, the impoverished, and the diseased. From the old woman with a brain tumor in Calcutta to the young man with AIDS in New York City. A special focus of our care are mothers and their children. This includes mothers who feel pressured to sacrifice their unborn children by want, neglect, despair, and philosophies and government policies that promote the dehumanization of inconvenient human life. And it includes the citizens, the children, I'm sorry, and it includes the children themselves, innocent and utterly defenseless, who are at the mercy of those who would deny their humanity. I'm going to read that again. It includes the children themselves. Now, dehumanized and seen as inconvenient. It includes the children themselves, innocent and utterly defenseless, who are at the mercy of those who would deny their humanity. So, she continues, in a sense, my sisters and those we serve are all outsiders together. At the same time, we are supremely conscious of the common bonds of humanity that unite us and transcend national boundaries. In another sense, no one in the world who prizes liberty and human rights can feel anything but a strong kinship with America. Yours is the one great nation in all of history that was founded on the precept of equal rights and respect for all humankind, for the poorest and weakest of us, as well as the richest and the strongest. As your Declaration of Independence put it, in words that have never lost their power to stir the heart, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. End quote. She continues, A nation founded on these principles holds a sacred trust to stand as an example to the rest of the world, to climb ever higher in its practical realization of the ideals of human dignity, brotherhood, and mutual respect. Your constant efforts in fulfillment of that mission, far more than your size or your wealth or your military might, have made America an inspiration to all mankind. It must be recognized that your model was never one of realized perfection, but of ceaseless aspiration. From the outset, for example, America denied the African slave his freedom and human dignity, but in time you righted that wrong, albeit at an incalculable, co incalculable cost in human suffering and loss of life. But your impetus has always been toward a fuller, more all-embracing conception and assurance of the rights that your founding fathers recognized as inherent and God-given. Yours has ever been an exclusive and not an exclusive society, and your steps, though they may have paused or faltered now and then, have been pointed in the right direction and have trod the right path. The task has not always been an easy one, and each new generation has faced its own challenges and temptations, but in a unique, courageous, and inspiring way, America has kept faith. And so now she's going to talk about the degrading weather patterns 
of the cultural climate. Yet, she continues, there has been one infinitely tragic and destructive departure, departure, that's me repeating, departure, from those American ideals in recent memory. It was this court's own decision in Roe v. Wade in 1973 to exclude the unborn child from the human family. You ruled that a mother, in consultation with her doctor, has broad discretion guaranteed against infringement by the United States Constitution to choose to destroy her unborn child. I just want to pause and say there is no euphemism here. There is no covering up harsh reality with pretty words that soften the blow. This is just plain truth. She goes on. Your opinion stated that you did not need to, quote, resolve the difficult question of when life begins, unquote. But that question is inescapable. If the right to life and an inherent is an inherent and inalienable right, it must surely exist wherever life exists. No one can deny that the unborn child is a distinct being, that it is human, and that it is alive. It is unjust, therefore, to deprive the unborn child of its fundamental right to life on the basis of its age, size, or condition of dependency. It was a sad infidelity to America's highest ideals when the court said, when this court said, that it did not matter or could not be determined when the inalienable right to life began for a child in its mother's womb. Listen to your mother here, she continues. America needs no words from me to see how your decision in Roe v. Wade has deformed a great nation. Now, Mitch is going to jump in here. This was 1994, and our, our mother speaking here, Mother Teresa, is making observations on what's happening to the cultural fabric based on this exclusion or denial of inalienable human rights to the unborn child. We're now 20, 21, 20 to 21 years in, and she's seeing the erosion of the fabric and the hurricane of a death culture blowing in. And now, for us, um, another 30 years later, another 30 years later, we see the, def the deformation in an even greater way in, in a significant expression revealed in the number of mass shootings as the, f the understanding of belonging and family and the understanding of what it means to be a contributing citizen and a collective together has all but dissolved. There's no vision for a collective life together. There's just a growing despair as a result of a culture of death. I'm just going to read that again back to, you, back to our mother who's talking to us. America needs no words from me to see how your decision in Roe versus Wade has deformed a great nation. The so-called right to abortion has pitted mothers against their children and women against men. It has sown violence and discord at the heart of the most intimate of human relationships. Abortion has aggravated the derogation of a father's role. What that means is it has accelerated a father's sinful desire to abdicate or abrogate or abandon 
his role to the family, to the child. It has aggravated, I'm back to her, abortion has aggravated the derogation of the father's role in an increasingly fatherless society. It has portrayed the greatest of gifts, a child, as a competitor, an intrusion, and an inconvenience. It has nominally accorded mothers unfettered domination over the independent lives of their physically dependent sons and daughters. And in granting this unconscionable power, it has exposed many women to unjust and selfish demands from their husbands or other sexual partners. Human rights are not a privilege conferred by government. They are every being's, every human being's entitlement by virtue of his or her humanity. The right to life does not depend and must not be declared to be contingent on the pleasure of anyone else, not even a parent or a sovereign. She goes on. The Constitutional Court of the Federal Republic of Germany recently ruled that, quote, the unborn child is entitled to its right to life independently of acceptance by its mother. This is an elementary and inalienable right that emanates from the dignity of the human being, unquote. Americans may feel justly proud that Germany in 1993 was able to recognize the sanctity of human life. You must weep now that your own government at present seems blind to this truth. In closing, she writes, I have no new teaching for America. I seek only to recall your faithfulness to what you once taught the world. Your nation was founded on the proposition, very old as a moral precept, but startling and innovative as a political insight. The proposition that human life is a gift of immeasurable worth and that it deserves, always and everywhere, to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect. I urge the court to take the opportunity presented by the petitions in these cases to consider, consider the fundamental question of when human life begins and to declare without equivocation the inalienable rights which it possesses. End of amicus brief. I read that entire section because I couldn't, re I couldn't rephrase or summarize it uh, more appropriately. And my proposition today, as we close the Pinocchio Project episode titled Climate Change and a Mother's Grief, is to remind you that ideas have consequences. And the ideas wrought by the sexual revolution that a child now is no longer viewed primarily as a gift, but as an intrusion has now embedded consequences of tsunami force in a culture that sees life as less and less valuable, more and more disposable, in a culture of despair where purpose and meaning are no longer rooted in the fact that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has design, purpose, and deserves dignity and respect. I really don't know what application to leave you with. This was something that I recognized and was helped to recognize by my own students in my Intro to Biblical Worldview course, that abortion ruins everything and solves nothing. We must, I guess this is the point of application, 
We must wake up to this reality if we're not awake. If we are awake, we must stand up and speak up and use everything at our disposal to continue now locally from a state and local perspective to fight the battle for unborn life. We hold these truths to be self-evident. These rights are given by God, not by government, and any of its secular desires for toxic bad ideas about what it means to be human and flourish. I think I'm finished. Please consider your role in speaking up and maybe changing the climate. Climate change works both ways, you know. It can degrade and it can improve toward flourishing. We are culture creators. There's your application. For the Pinocchio Project, this is Mitch Friedman signing off. Thanks so much for being with us on the Pinocchio Project today. If this podcast has value for you, please subscribe or follow. Give us a five-star rating and share. If you have an everyday idea you'd like to submit for us to examine, simply email us at pinocchioprojectpod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at pinocchiopod, or you can hit the links in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening, and remember, your everyday ideas have significant consequences.